40 years ago this weekend was uh, the pardon of General, uh, the pardon of uh, Richard Nixon. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about who? We're live. We're live. This week on Backroom Politics, POTUS will address the nation tomorrow night detailing his strategy dealing with ISIS. What can he do to sell the American public on a new war? Can we deal with ISIS without boots on the ground? The Obama flip-flop on immigration executive orders. Why does this issue keep the White House up at night? Today is the last of primary season before the midterms. What does this mean for the Dems and the Republicans? And 40 years ago, President Ford pardoned former President Richard Nixon, the impact to the nation and impact on the presidency. This, and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street on the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief for then Gerald R. Ford. He is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And to my 12 o'clock across the table, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox and the former Executive Director of the great state of Maryland's Democratic Party. He is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock across the table, she is the former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration, former Homeland Security Council for the Homeland Security Committee in the House under Benny Thompson. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Justin. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. And to my one o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce and longtime Senate insider 
and a very distinguished and handsome fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is ironically the Democratic political operative and bar certified attorney in the great District of Columbia. He is Daniel Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Howdy, y'all. And we've got a big show for y'all. I am your moderator, Radio's Justin Russell, and we are going to be talking a little bit about the same same topic that's been dominating the news for almost a month now, and of course we're talking about ISIS. Uh, Tomorrow night, in a primetime speech, President Obama will address the nation regarding and laying out possible strategies for the dealing, uh, dealing with ISIS. This is a problem that has plagued the president. Uh, there is a majority of Americans who believe that the president has not handled the ISIS question well. However, it does seem that the ISIS issue has brought Americans together. Over 72% of Americans believe that ISIS should be dealt with and be dealt with strongly and with possible military action. The big question is, what could President Obama possibly put out? The, Alan Moore, going to start with you. What are the options that might be available to President Obama that he could detail in his primetime speech? Well, the big question for him uh, so far is how aggressive to be inside Iraq, where 72% of the people say yes, and whether to go into Syria, where they have uh, basically... Uh, refuge and and safety, and we have not gone into Syria, and that's more complicated. And about 62% of the American people say, let's go into Syria. I think it's interesting what these polls show about what the American people think. It reminds us how <laughs> how fickle we all are, and I don't think that that is the thing that determines what to do, uh, but it's certainly instructive and, and, and helps us figure out how to make the case. Um, I think the president will will talk about a, a somewhat more aggressive uh, uh, enterprise in both countries, and he will talk about our, our alliances this time, because uh, what he was doing last week in the meetings, uh, the NATO-related meetings, was, was to, to develop a coalition, which will now number probably a dozen or more countries, who will be our partners in all of this, and I think that's part of it. The big other question that he has to address is whether to seek authorization from the Congress or simply inform the Congress. We don't know the answer to that yet, and there's some really interesting divides among some Republicans, some Democrats, some people say absolutely he needs authority, and others say no, he has authority. And uh, it, it's, that particular issue is creating a strange bedfellows. It is, is creating strange bedfellows. Congressman Al, from a congressman's perspective, if you were still seated as Congressman 2nd Congressional District Washington, w- would you, in this instance, be seeking the president to get authorization from Congress? Or is this enough of a clear and present danger to national security to give the president authority to go out and act as commander-in-chief? I think my reaction would be, if the general public sees it as a sufficient threat to the country, they will be there and Congress will pass it. If the general public does not see that as a sufficient, they will tell the Congress that, and I think the president would have trouble. Uh, I think he is probably, with the support for boots on the ground in one way or another, uh, he is probably going to do it, and he would be... If, if he's got the votes, which he would, I would think he would have, it would be a mistake not 
to get congressional authority. Bob Hines. I think what he's going to say is that he's going to intensify uh, air attacks where he can find the uh, any you know, com, you know group of, of ISIS people. He's going to have more success of that in uh, Iraq because it's easier to see them there. Uh, and he, we, we know we have better uh, intelligence in that area. We're not so good in Syria. I also suspect that he's going to be doing... It's, it's going to be a lot of uh, some uh, effort with drones and planes trying to find some of the, uh, their stockpile of equipment, uh, mechanism, trucks and tanks, try to knock them out. There will probably be some um, effort to uh, find that also in, in the uh, northeastern uh, corner of Syria where they are headquartered. And it would be wonderful if we could find out where their leadership actually is and maybe go after them personally. Dan Lipner. Well, first, I think we need to also acknowledge the president deserves some credit here. Um, after getting lambasted for supposedly not having a strategy, uh, but in actuality, it was a strategy in development to not only uh, work on determining what the threat is, but also developing an actual coalition, which is now... Uh, which is now cementing itself, including getting regional actors to put their boots on the ground. So this isn't a West versus the Arab world kind of fight, but the civilized world against this evil existence of ISIS. So the president deserves some real credit for that. Denny Scrap? I'm going to agree with Bob. It'll have to be drones. And the reason I say it has to be drones rather than boots on the ground is because we don't have a budget yet. And he doesn't want to upset whatever precarious apple cart that they are developing right now to get, you know, whatever budget we're going to get through November or December. So with drones comes more of a capability. Mm -hmm. With boots on the ground comes a cost. And nobody's willing to do that right Nobody now. Wants it. Alan Moore? Um, yeah, I think that, that he, he, has, <laughs> he has removed the idea of combat troops. And I, American I combat. American combat troops, yes, thank you. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I will simply remind everybody something I, I, I said a couple of weeks ago, that when we use the phrase boots on the ground, we have to be careful, because there are over a thousand Americans over there now uh, embedded with, uh, with local forces, providing advice. Most of them are wearing boots. Most of them are walking on the ground. So it's an unfortunate phrase when, we're, when we use that phrase, but what, what we're really talking about is larger combat forces, and unfortunately we don't have the residual force that we should have had, but don't and won't and won't. Okay, Carl Tuvin. Two things. <clears throat> Number one, when I was getting out of my car and the radio was on, uh, <clears throat> the uh, congressional leadership seemed to be happy with, with what he's going to do. McConnell made some positive statements and, and others, <clears throat> number one. Number two, uh, they've also, behind the scenes, it's now public, have developed uh, a Sunni regiment <clears throat> to join uh, with the Iraq army now. Who knows how trained they are and, and what that's going to mean, or, but it's, it's a move in the right direction. Plus the fact that we now have <clears throat> a new government in Iraq, which seems to be coming together. Uh, John Kerry went over to visit with them uh, sometime this morning. Denise Krupp. 
you know, I, I understand what, what Alan is saying, is, you know, the difference between boots on the ground and boots on the ground. Quite frankly, it reminds me a little bit of Vietnam. I mean, how quickly did we slide into that one with boots on the ground? Um, I, I don't think, however, that we're, we're heading into a Vietnam situation where we had them and then we truly had them. Uh, but I think that we need to be watching out for what we are doing because there are going to be expectations on the part of those in Iraq and Syria right now. And will they understand the difference that we're talking about? Will they fully understand that American participation is not American soldiers, but it's going to be American drones that are going to be dropping bombs from above us? Bob Hines. Two quick thoughts. Number one, I think the president would be very wise to ask the congressional leader for leadership on both houses to ask for them for a vote of But let me, let me just interrupt that, because we talked about this now for a couple of minutes. Is it likely, particularly with some of the opponents of boots-on-the-ground action, in, in particular the Senate, that they can get both houses to go along with giving authorization for a full military strike against ISIS? I think you can word it, you can word a support resolution in any in a way that does not indicate you're going to send boots on the ground, quote unquote. Alan Moore, does that weaken the initiative, or does that demonstrate to our allies that a, a somewhat weakened initiative, if we start hedging our bets and putting in conditions of engaging ISIS? Well, I, I don't I don't know what kind of conditions we're going to put in. This is really. Uh, uh, in, inside the inside America issue, first and foremost. That's not to say that the language doesn't get read in, in great detail. I can tell you right now, they'll be but, reading that in Whitehall. Well, but 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 the way to think about this issue in America is to think about Lindsey Graham, Senator, Republican Senator from South Carolina, and his great close friend and ally John McCain of Arizona. They are on opposite sides of this question. Lindsey Graham says, the president has adequate authority. We expect him to tell us how he's going to use that authority. We want to be consulted. We don't need to give him additional authority, and it would, have been, it would be a mistake to suggest we should. John McCain, on the other hand, is saying he needs to come and seek additional authority in language that people would have to work out. So this is a fascinating question with people on, in both parties on both sides of the seek authorization. Question. Dan Lipner. Well, the War Powers Act is pretty clear on it. 60 days after the first shot is fired, you're supposed to get congressional approval to, to continue on with the fight. And the consensus seems to be that this is going to be more than a 60-day fight against ISIS. That being said, the only reason for a member of Congress not to want congressional authority on this is to play politics with it. The idea that we're going to put uh, American forces in play and not to have Congress involved, when inevitably we all end up footing the bill for this, both in human lives and actual money, that that needs to be taken in, into account, and Congress needs to have a hand in that. Denise Kraft. Was talking about was very nuanced, and I'm going to go back to what Lindsey Graham's background is and what John McCain's background is in the military. Lindsey Graham's a military lawyer. John McCain was an aviator. So for Lindsey Graham to say, with all the years of experience, because he had over 20 plus years in the reserves, that the president already has that authority, is pretty striking. But I mean, but I want to, I want to touch on that. But I'll let Bob Hines go first. I don't think. From the standpoint of the, of, of the American public, the question isn't 
Dunsier doesn't have the authority. I, I don't can argue that case. It would be wise if he went to the Congress and got a resolution, in effect, saying, you're doing the right thing. These are bad guys. We've got to help our friends in the Middle East get rid of the bad guys. Would that buy Congressman Al a little bit of good faith as far as giving the president a little bit more leeway as to what he really needs to do in dealing with the ISIS situation? I think it closes off a number of ways he could be attacked politically down the line uh, if, in fact, he has a, an overwhelming majority of both parties. So it's smart politically. I think it's smart politically. Alan Moore, is it smart operationally? Well, and this is the question. If, if we're simply a, a political question, um, sure, go get the votes, because this is a time where the American people say yes. I think a solid majority of the Congress would say yes. That's not really the point, and I, and I disagree with Dan's point, that the only people who would argue that you should do this or shouldn't do this is about politics. You, just as I mentioned, these two Republicans who are on opposite sides of the issue, there are Democrats in the Senate who are also on opposite sides of whether you need to seek authority or not. What this, what the reason, if you're in the White House, do you really want to, 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 to feel like every time you're going to take action that you believe you have the authority to take, that you have to go to Congress and get them to bless it? It's not always going to be this this black and white an issue where you'll have this kind of support. So I think it's, I don't know what he's going to do. I, it's not at all obvious to me uh, what, what he'll do. And, and, and I'm sure he, the way he studies issues, he's been on this side, he's been on that side. You know, they'll get their final draft together sometime before tomorrow night and decide. They've probably already decided. But, but I, there are other ways you can get the Congress to speak without actually granting authority also. You can get them to endorse the president's actions, and that would be another way for them to speak, but not to actually grant, re-grant authority and have, if you will, another example of a case where Dan, you didn't have to go to the Congress, but he did, and that becomes another precedent. Dan Lipner. Well, the precedent that has that most people would, or at least the Congress and the Constitution suggest the pre president needs to do. And we can't forget, we are a scant two months out from uh, the next election. And I would argue that the president getting the authority from Congress does look pretty presidential and actually shows some presidential leadership and arguably uh, could actually turn some some voters in a different direction considering his record low approval rating. So Dan is proposing the political rationale. Versus justifying it? Versus whether the law requires it. Oh, oh, that legal no, no, thing. I, I, I'm, I'm saying the local law requires it and the politics of it makes sense for him. Similarly, it makes much more sense for the Republicans not to have that same kind of approval. Because you can go after the imperial presidency for not going after congressional. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, think I, I agree. Republicans are going to have been urging him to be more assertive, to be clear in this objective. I think there will be an overwhelming vote for in one form or the other. I, I don't think it's absolutely clear that that the law requires that he get this authority. And, and, and I, I would agree. That's what the, where the debate is among Republicans, yeah. among Democrats, and inside the White House. And I would agree with that because, you know, hearing Lindsey Graham, I think Lindsey Graham, what you're starting to see out of him is he's separating out the military lawyer versus the senator and his interpretation of the law as a lawmaker. No, no, I agree. I, I don't disagree with you on that. I, I think what we're seeing is I think we're seeing a different side of Lindsey Graham. We're yeah. seeing him 
as the lawmaker versus the JAG officer, the ju- judge advocate general officer, in his interpretation of this. Absolutely, you get wagged the dog. Well, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I want to address this, Dan. I mean, the, the reality is you've got people now like Peter King, who by no means is a massive supporter of the president's action on foreign policy or national security, even as early as, even as late as this morning. Peter King was on CNN discussing the fact that he is, he is willing to give the president credit for taking decisive action in dealing with ISIS as a clear and present danger to national security. He believes that the president is taking now, what he's angry about is it took him this long, but what he's happy about is that he's now finally coming up with the decisive action and coming up with a decisive strategy to eliminate ISIS from the planet, period. And I think that that is a support that the president can really use right now. Am I wrong in that, Congressman? You went on for so long, I stopped listening. uh, Are you accusing me of being Alan Moore? (laughs) Oh, come on, I had to do it. You you always keep saying he's handsome, so funny. Oh, damn. (laughs) It's good if it's funny. When it doesn't work, that's just... When you have to explain the joke, I get silent. Shit, I got crickets. Well... (laughs) <laughs> Back to the topic. I had a great line. You two wouldn't stop talking long enough for me to deliver. So good. We're on target then. Denise Crap. If Peter King's going to come out like this, it's good on him. Because he's going to recognize that there is support, as the congressman said, to do this. However, as Alan also said, the American public is rather fickle. So the question would be what happens if anybody gets killed? And the button saying, Get killed. Americans get killed because of this action. But I think I think the American, judging from polls that we've seen out of NBC, out of CBS, out of Marist, we're seeing that a large majority of the Americans are actually seeking a, an aggressive action by the president in dealing with ISIS. Well, and I understand that, but let's remind the Americans that how many Americans have actually served in the military. I mean, Jessica, when you we're looking at the percentages here, you and I did. You know, and, and that's pretty small compared to what everybody else did. And the folks that have served and have been serving for 10 years now are a little bit tired. So it's not like they're going to go and say, yippee, we're going to go back in. Congressman Al? We have been talking as though it's a given that the public is, is now supportive of moving in militarily. And I think that's accurate. <clears throat> but one of the reasons that the president should get uh, congressional backing on this and congressional action is that the public has a way of changing its mind. It's, uh, it doesn't have to, like a, like a politician, when he changes his mind, have to do a mea culpa and explain the whole thing. They can just change their mind anytime they want to and deny that they ever had another view. So I think that once we get in there, and if the going gets tough, and I see no reason that this is going to be easy, you can expect public opinion to change. And that's the reason that the president needs to have both parties uh, complicit in making this decision so that they can't hack away at each other. But, Bob Hines, it sounds like to me, though, judging off the fact that we've got, you know, Republicans in the Senate and even in the House coming out publicly stating that the president's got the authority, president, fire at will – versus everybody pig-piling on the president saying, you never do this, you never come to the Hill, we're going to hold your feet to the fire here on the Hill, you're going to come to us for authorization. If it were me, 
looking at it from an administrative stamp or from the administration standpoint, I think I got enough ready. Let's go now. Is that accurate? I, my view is, look, we're not talking about battalions of American soldiers fighting in foxholes and, and fighting room to room and door to door in the Middle East. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about yet. most of it. Of course, yes. But the fact of the matter is, what we're doing now is we are trying to do several things. Number one, hike up our intelligence, both in, 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 in Iraq and in Syria particularly, so we know more about what's going on and where they are, number one. Number two, we're going to be trying to be training and, and helping to lead and focus the military of the uh, army of, the, uh, of Iraq and the, the Kurds and whoever else is going to help us to try to start pushing them back and pushing them back. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a whole lot of American troops running around fighting personally. But Alan Moore, if you're the president and you're looking at, we just so you know, folks, we're in here in Shelley's, we have up in the smoke-encrusted control room here, we have CNN on the line, and CNN just put up a new CNN ORC poll that shows that 87% of Americans believe that this is a horrible Congress, 65% of Americans polled in the CNN poll believe this is the worst Congress in their lifetime. If you're the president and you're seeing that 65% believe it's the worst Congress in their lifetime, you're the president, I got better numbers than that, let's roll. It's, you know, I'm not sure what connection you're trying to make here with that. Uh, I'm just saying, it's true. You, that, but, horrible horrible but that approval numbers. But that doesn't speak to the question. That, that's not dispositive for him of what he should do, whether he should consult with the Congress. This is an easier consult with the Congress than he normally has um, because there is a, an enormous amount of support across the country to do more to fight ISIL, as he calls it, um, and and... And the, it, but it back to going to the Congress. Do you do you just consult? Do you ask them to endorse what you do, or you're doing, or do you ask them to authorize what you're doing? These are all these are these are important questions that, in my mind, don't have to do with the popularity of the Congress, but have to do with what the law requires, what the how the president wants to tie his own hands conceivably for the future and down the road, how much he wants to to be able to say, hey, we all said yes on this. But we're talking about drones. We're talking about taking the numbers up a little bit. As Dan wisely said, though, all the military experts say you can't just do it with drones. And chances are these combat troops from some of the regional forces, these, these are guys who, whose capabilities pale by the side of American capabilities. I'm not suggesting that we're going to be seeing American combat troops in big numbers, but we're going to be in for a long slog here, and the, Amer the fickle American public we've talked about, Al and others, um, God, I've stopped listening again. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Tubin. Yeah, Carl Tubin. We've got to remember also, it's not just drones. We have fighter planes going in and bombing. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think and we also have people on the ground right now, as, 
as advisors, trainers, etc. Well, we got a, you, you mentioned you mentioned fighter jets. We got a bigger problem right now because as as of yesterday, there's now video being put out by ISIS showing them having access to old Iraqi MiG and old Syrian MiG fighters. They've got they've got fighter jets at their disposal because they've taken over and. The pilot. Huh? Yeah, they have pilots. We hope great. they put them in the air. We, yeah. Well, yeah. I'd love to see them in the air. And let our guys go take yeah. them out. Take them out. Take them agreed. Out. I'm just telling you, would you put it back? I mean, look, nobody thought that they could operate some of the sophisticated military equipment that was left over by the, the Iraqi army. They have. Nobody thought that they would have the possibility of putting out such a high-tech media bash into the global internet community, and they have. These people have resources available to them. Now then, are they going to have fighter pilots available to them? No. But let's also be honest, though. Anybody who's been trained in a jet fighter or anybody who's been trained in jet aircraft knows how to start one of these up with one of these manuals that are probably printed in Arabic. That's got to be a little bit of a... Now, it's a stretch... But it just shows these guys are getting assets available to them. Let, let's hope that our intelligence is good enough to know where these planes are and they'll be blown up before they get into the air. Dan Littner? Another thing I wanted to say oh. is I'm all with Dan. I think the president would sensibly would go to the Congress and get resolutions in each house to do this and, and, and show some unity among the congressional Republicans and Democrats. Dan Lipner, last word. Well, let's suppose the hypothetical just to play this forward. An American aircraft going to attack ISIS, at, and while drones will probably be a sizable portion of this, there will be manned aircraft involved with this. You're right. Well, on, on return flight, strays into Syrian airspace, and a Syrian surface-to-air missile takes out an American plane. This is mission creep. Are you honestly suggesting that there isn't a possibility of something else? This is exactly, something like that is exactly why the president needs and should seek congressional approval. No? Will that, let, that be the, will let that be the last word? Although, you know what? No, I'm, moderator, I'm going to take moderator privilege. Last 30 seconds, going around the horn. Al, Congressman Al, does he go for approval from Congress and does he get it? Now you're asking me to project. I have no idea. My view is he should get it from the Congress. Bob Hines? I agree. Carl Tubin? I agree. Congress. Denise? Yes or no. He goes for approval. They don't give it. Alan Moore? He goes for a for their support, but not their formal approval. Dan Lipner? Every member of Congress is getting a, a classified briefing on ISIS. I think he's absolutely seeking congressional authority. The correct answer is he will go ask for permission, but he will have his own conditions to do it, and they will give him conditional approval. That being said, when we come back, we're going to talk about... I'm a moderator. I can say stuff like that. Just work with me. <laughs> yes, John. Yeah, thank you. When we come back, we're going to talk about another problem facing the president right now. It's immigration. The president has flip-flopped over the past couple of weeks on whether he will or will not give executive orders regarding the immigration crisis, particularly the unaccompanied minor situation on the border. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, 
They think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings. Famous campfire wings. One pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee it. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change to a domestic situation. That kind of ties into the troubles that the president's been having uh, for the past few months. But now we're talking immigration. Uh, the president, as of two weeks ago, had indicated uh, in both the media and through discussions with key Democrats on the Hill that he was about to put out executive orders regarding the immigration crisis happening on the southern border. As of yesterday, or as of over the weekend, the president has decided that he will not issue executive orders regarding the immigration crisis, and that he will wait until after the midterms to deal with the immigration question. 
This is a situation that continues to stay fluid in the White House. It is a situation that continues to elude the administration to get some sort of positive control over. Denise Krepp, former general counsel on the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives, why does this issue continue to baffle and cause problems for the Obama administration? It's not baffling the Obama administration. It's dividing the Obama administration, to be very honest with you. I mean, there, there are some that are saying... He should take action. There are others that say he shouldn't, and everything's being tied right now to um, what's happening in, in the Senate and whether or not the Democrats keep their seats. I, 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 I feel a little concerned about this issue when I started reading some of the Washington Post articles that have been printed over the past couple of days talking about the children. Um, they're, you know, they're about, about 50,000 children that are now in the United States. And they've been slaves because they've crossed the border with their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles, many of them they haven't seen. And to me, when you start delaying this type of decision, you're impacting real people. And these people aren't 18 years old. They can be young as two and three years old. So what are we telling them? You can stay with mommy and daddy right now, but after the Senate election, we might have a decision for you and we might yank you away from mommy and daddy and send you home. That's an awful thing to say as an American, and, and I would encourage members from both sides of the party to start taking real action because there are real children involved, and it's just unconscionable what we're doing. Congressman now, I think that I think that the advent of children as part of this whole problem has changed, or should damn well change, the whole approach to the situation. It is one thing to be hard-hearted or or think of adults as, you know, pieces on a board and, uh, and make your policy on that. It's a different thing to do that with children. And I think that, uh, that regardless of where, which side you've been on on these issues, everybody should go back to the drawing board and rethink their position, including what do you do about treating children with humanity. Dan Lipner. Considering there are some conservative groups out there treating the, uh, the, the immigration issue as children as they are invading hordes, uh, including trying to block buses, uh, believing they are the immigrant children. In one case, it was actually uh, kids from a YMCA on a field trip. Um, the, the only reason that, that this is a, as big a problem right now is it's all politics. And the reason the president has decided to hold off on this is because, because several uh, senators in tough races have now asked him, in fact, from what I've heard, actually begged the White House to hold off because it will actually reduce their, their chances of re-election. With the only exception of, of uh, Udall in, in Colorado, where, where there's a significant uh, Latin American vote, uh, it's not clear where Democrats can benefit this cycle. And but to Denise's point... Be, we shouldn't be benefiting anybody. We're talking about children here. This is ridiculous. And find somebody on the other side who's willing to grab a hand and give a little cover. Alan Moore. Yeah, let's remember, we created this problem for ourselves. We stopped deporting certain, certain younger people, made the unilateral decision, and then the Congress, trying to stop... Human trafficking some years ago passed a law that said we're going to treat Mexican immigrants different from immigrants from Central America. This opened the floodgates. These children, by the way, 
or legal children. They're not two and three-year-olds hopping on a bus by themselves or walking up, up here. They're mostly teenagers. They're boys uh, predominantly who, are, who have reason to fear some of the violence in the, the Central American countries from which they come, but they also have reason to think and have been led to believe by people who, who's, who their parents pay thousands of dollars, if you can get up here, you can stay. So we had this bizarre business and this flood of people who came up, and the question was, are we going to treat Mexicans different from Hondurans and Guatemalans? Does that make any sense? And do we really want to create a, a situation that encourages them to come up here? Now, the, once they're here, they have certain rights certain legal rights, which you can't take away from them. Um, it doesn't mean you, you can't deport under some circumstances. We're still deporting about a thousand people a day who, who come in. So what the president did, though, as Dan says, it's all about the politics. The problem is it's still another example of where he said he was going to do something before the end of the summer and then recently said, uh, uh, we're mind. good. Yeah, but but Denise Scott, Denise Scott, I, I I do want to talk about this. I mean, there's no question. I mean, even Democrats are now starting to be convinced that the way that the president handled DACA, the Deferred Deportation Action Program for illegal illegal migrant and immigrant children in school systems that were actively participating in an in a formal education system would not face deportation as long as they stayed in school. Although there was largely some Republican and a majority Democrat support on that, and, it's, and in my opinion, as a Republican, I think it's a good program, the handling of the messaging down south of the border created this problem. Well, okay. Yeah, there was a messaging problem. But I'm not going to say that this is the President's fault. I'm not going to say this is the Congress' fault. As Ellen said created a little bit of a problem a couple of years ago. We need to work as a country to fix this problem because you cannot put a child, and these are children, in a position of not knowing what they're going to do. But it creates, not only does it create significant difficulties for them, but you're putting them into communities, and that is creating chaos within these communities. But you're also having a problem, though, Denise, is one of the problems that they're finding is that you cannot they cannot sort out some of these children are 15, 16, 17 years old. Some of them have, as they found out, once they were inside the holding facilities that they're being uh, detained in, that they are members of some very nefarious organizations, the biggest one being MS-13 out of El Salvador. The, and that poses a criminal justice and a national security situation. Plus, you have the infiltration of some of these older teenagers that have direct ties to, even in the Mexican community, uh, the cartels, the narco traffickers, uh, some very nefarious organizations. I you think painting them. Cartels and some of these MS 13s were created. They were created here in the United States, and then we shipped <laughs> them home. We created this problem, and it's up to us to fix it. We can't blame other people for our problem. We did this to ourselves. Well, why, can't, why, can't, why can't the government separate these people out and send them back? They're, they're trying to. 
they're trying to. I mean, Bob Hines, I, I mean, you're talking about how many number? What was the number you gave us, Denise? Well, over 50,000. You've got 50,000 children and trying to investigate each individual child, or let's say even a third of them are over the age of 14, you're, you're talking about tens of thousands of children that you've got to adjudicate as suitable to enter the country legally as refugees, however you want to classify them, without them having some sort of built-in criminal element from their home country. It's all but impossible. I mean, it's just, it's just a total disaster. I have no idea what the solution is. But Congressman now, knowing some of these facts, I mean, it, this is a very difficult situation, and, and, and I, 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 I feel for Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson, I feel for uh, HHS programs that are dealing with this, I feel for Congress. This is a tough decision. You've got to weigh a national security problem with a humanitarian problem, and where do you find the common ground? Well, it <clears throat> seems to me that the one thing that is obvious, and it makes the problem so difficult, no one wants to just really come out and say it, although the conservatives have been arguing this all the time, you first of all got to shut off the borders. I mean, trying to decide what you do with people who are already here, while at the same time they're still coming, is kind of not going to work very well. And <clears throat> I don't know how you stop them. Uh, I think some of the proposals that have been made are ridiculous. Uh, but... The reality is, if you don't stop them from coming in, you're not going to solve the problem of them being here. Alan Moore, you've been involved in several international organizations that deal with both refugees and humanitarian crises, such as what we're dealing with on the southern border. And I'm going to ask you kind of the same question that I asked Congressman Al. Is there a common ground that we can deal with this crisis where we weigh the criminal justice national security issue with the humanitarian issue of dealing with children? Well, as Al suggests, there's, there's, there's several things that you have to do simultaneously. We have to slow down the flow. Now, you can slow down the flow in two ways, Stock of, stopping them at the border or preventing them from, from setting off on this journey in the first place. That's, the, the flood has slowed to a trickle, partly because the people who were ready to go came fairly early, and then we started stopping them in in Mexico. The Mexicans, with with U.S. help, was stopping buses and turning them around, and so on. And then, but our border is still pretty porous. And this whole notion of it, how how do you do you do you do you shut the border? and then do immigrant reform on the people who are here, or do you do it simultaneously? We're not very good at any of these. We, we've, we've not been able to, to, to shut the border, and we're not sure how to legalize, create a, a legal pathway. And there's differences of opinion, billions of dollars being spent. But, but we, we do have to, whether, whether, the, the, whether the flow slowed to a trickle because of everybody ready to go had already left, or because they were getting a new message. It's like, don't come, because you won't get across, and, if you, and, and you're not going to be able to stay. Um, but, but the bigger issue, you know, and, and people who are here, and if they are underage, we have, they have certain rights that have to be honored and respected. We can't just take them in, put them someplace temporarily if they're, if they're children. Adults, a different matter. But this thing got out of hand very fast, and the president, for 
obvious political reasons, and we predicted this a while back uh, around this table, all of his big talk notwithstanding, we're going to have an executive order by the before the end of the summer. Eh, not so sure about that. This is tough politics. Denise Crack. Let's start talking about the practical implications of what we're doing here. You know, Washington, D.C., at least according to the Washington Post, is the fourth largest city to get these children after Miami, New York, and Los Angeles. So when these children go into schools, they then have to receive services. And these costs are going to mount because these children don't speak English. So how do you teach them English? Then you have to provide counseling for them because many of them underwent some pretty significant life-altering experiences when they cross this border. So how do we deal with that situation? How do we make sure that they are integrated into our society so that they don't continue to have additional problems? These are questions that we should be asking. And oh, by the way, it's not the federal government that's paying for these issues right now. It's going to be the states and the locals because the federal government isn't picking up this cost. So it's actually in the interest of several members to start saying, wait a second, how much is this costing you right now, and how do we make sure that we don't continue to bear these costs because people aren't making decisions? Dan Lipner? Well, it's worth noting that Speaker Boehner, uh, way back in the beginning of, the, of this Congress, did actually plan on talking about immigration reform, and that eventually fell off the agenda, and with the eventual defeat of Congressman Cantor, who was the who was one of the chief uh, proponents of immigration reform on the Republican side, uh, losing his reelection in the primary, uh, that has dramatically changed the tone and also scared the hell out of everyone on the Hill. So putting this all on the president isn't quite fair. That, as Alan correctly pointed out, this is a legislative failure that was not was was not created intentionally. It was actually the best of intentions that created it. But, but the inability of Congress to act nimbly at all and over a period of years um, is suggesting suggesting the real problem. But, but Alan Moore, I mean, you know, a lot of people are putting this onus on the Republicans. There were some key Midwestern Democrats that didn't go along with some of the immigration ideas that were coming out of the White House either. Does that pose a problem for the well, president trying look, to get some look, sort of executive if, order passed? If the president thought an executive order at this time related to immigration would be helpful to Democrats, he would go forward with it. He has concluded with a lot, with a lot of whispering and screaming and concerned calls from Democrats, oh my God, not now, not now, not now. So uh, I don't have a quarrel with him delaying. I always assumed he would once we saw this flood coming over because it changed the whole political dynamic. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, if I were in his shoes, I, I would do the same thing. I don't know why, if I would have gotten, I, I like to think I would not have gotten as far out ahead of myself saying before the end of the summer, we're going to do this because He's got. He's he's getting a pattern now of saying he's going to do stuff and then and then retreating, not just in immigration, but cry wolf. But, but, he walks softly and will walk even softer. Yeah. <laughs> Carl Tubin. This is blasphemy to say, but I'm going to agree with Alan. Oh my God! Why is everyone surprised? He's done this before. But you would think. But but Carl Tubin, you would think that. Every time this president and his communication staff put out something, hey, we're going to do something right now, right here, we're going to take definitive action, it's within the president's authority to do it, and they pull back, at some point, they're going to lose credibility, not with the Hill, 
But with the American voters, that's the bigger problem, is it not? For especially coming up on midterms. What do you mean at some point? I think we passed that point. I think, I, I, hold on, hold on, Congressman Al. I, I I think that the public is uh, got some real problems with the administration's credibility. The red line and all of those things since, uh, and and of course the Republicans are are sure to make sure that everybody knows about it. But uh, but that it's not the Republicans' fault. <laughs> Carl Tuvin. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, 
you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Back here live at Chili's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to turn to some election midterm talk. We're talking about the last of the primaries coming up, and today they include some some key issues that or some key races that have got everybody talking. 
but we're going to talk real quick about some state politics going on in Massachusetts. Uh, voters in Massachusetts today are dealing with a governor's race that's been very contentious. But right now, it looks like uh, Attorney General Martha Coakley is the overwhelming favorite. She is looking to take the Democratic ticket for November for the Commonwealth's highest office. But they've got there's some questions as far as whether or not she's going to actually take down in a landslide her competition, or is this going to be a close one? But the bigger issue for Washington, those following on the playbooks, uh, the Massachusetts 6th Congressional District. Obviously, this has been a Democratic stronghold for decades, but we've got a situation right now where we have incumbent Democratic Congressman John Tierney and a newcomer named Seth Moulton, who is shaping up to be a real potential thorn in Congressman Tierney's side. The question now is, and I want to go to uh, Alan Moore. Alan, when you look at a Democratic stronghold like Massachusetts 6th Congressional District and you see a tight race with an incumbent and a newcomer, is this a sign that even the Democrats are starting to feel the pressure of throw the bums out? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you always have to look in, into the into the detail of a particular race, but the Democrats have been enjoying way too much for way too long, all this infighting among the Republicans, and the Republicans are now saying, join the fun. You guys beat yourselves up and, and, and have at it, because it is very painful to watch. Uh, Dan Lipner, you look at John Tierney. I mean, John Tierney's had his share of problems. I mean, he's coming to this, he's coming to this race with a little bit of baggage behind him. Uh, but the reality is many people didn't think that this would be this close, especially in a political machine state like Massachusetts. Does it surprise you that we're seeing a race like this in a primary for Democrats in the 6th District of Massachusetts? Uh, political parties nationwide, as far as the strength of machines, have been declining, and this is just yet another example of that. So, no, it doesn't surprise me in the least. It doesn't surprise you. Uh, we're also looking at the New Hampshire Senate race. Uh, in this instance, you have a former seated state or former senator from Massachusetts, Scott Brown, who's running for uh, the Republican nomination in, as the senator from the great state of New Hampshire. Uh, Carl Tubin, does. Does it surprise you that we're seeing, in, even in New Hampshire, which has a strong uh, both Republican and Democratic Party, but carpetbaggers don't usually take well in, in New Hampshire. Is Scott Brown going to be the exception of the rule, possibly? He could be in the, in, in the primary, if there is a primary that he's fighting for. I don't think he's going to get past Senator, former Governor and Senator Shaheen. Uh, Bob Hines, you're talking about two key new northeast states with a lot of stroke, a lot of power, and a lot of money for especially the Democrats. Are, are the Democrats worried that they're seeing this type of infighting in, in those northeast states? I mean, they've got a fight in Rhode Island. They've got a, a fight in Delaware, possibly. Uh, is this making the Democrats nervous for November? Well, I hope not. <laughs> 
Wrong person to ask. Dan Lipner, are the Democrats nervous about the midterms? Are they starting to see them having the same problems that the Republicans had in 2010, where in some instances they're eating themselves? No. You don't think so? Why no. not? Uh, while while our, the, the great uh, Will Rogers uh, phrase, I don't belong to any organized political party, I'm a Democrat, still holds true. Um, I, at least when... With the organized assault on the president, uh, people have kind of closed ranks. So the, the internal party politics, while there, there is dissension within the ranks, it's not, it's not quite the chaos that the Tea Party created for the Republicans. Congressman Al, when, when you look at now the Democrats and the fights they're having in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and in Delaware and even in New York, uh, it, it Usually the Democrats take a, a page out of the playbook saying, we can fix this. We've all got to come together because we have to stave off the bigger evil empire that is the GOP. Is the Democratic Party that you know of starting to see a little bit of erosion into some sort of separate factioning inside the party? I think, I think party loyalty is, is, is having some erosion in both parties, and it can cause both parties the predictable problems. But I don't see the Democratic Party in, in, in verging on a state of collapse or anything even close to that. Uh, obviously, when you have controversy in a party, it's not as good as if you don't have uh, controversy. But uh, it's not the end of the world. The Democrats have been uh, fighting each other uh, in primaries for a long time. McCall Tubin, you were the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. You know, we, we've heard terms like party establishment and uh, party insiders, and, and usually that's been atoned to Republican candidates and the Republican Party, but for the first time we're hearing it from the Democratic Party. Is there legitimacy to the fact? Is there a Democratic uh, establishment, and is there now starting to be a fringe that you see? Well, there could sort there could be a democratic establishment. I mean, this establishment over the place. But if if in fact the ground game from uh, 2012 is transferred to 2014, and if if the Democrats manage to get the votes that they want out, uh, we ought to we ought to have some surprises in the election in winning seats that people think we can't win. Plus the fact, plus the fact that I said before, you know, when President Clinton, former President Clinton goes out and starts the campaign, and Hillary is probably going to go out and start the campaign for these uh, candidates, and uh, the president will go into certain areas where he's welcome and will stay out of a lot of other areas. But if all that comes, and, and, and uh, Vice President Biden, if they all go out and, and hit a very strong note uh, in the campaign, it could be the salvation of Democratic states that are thought now to go Republican. But Dan Lipner, you know, we talk about, you know, the establishment and the fringe. It, you know, let's say, for example, the New York governor's race. There's a primary for, uh, at one time, very popular governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, Governor Cuomo's got himself a little bit of a, a problem. He's being called too conservative for the governor's mansion in Albany, New York, and has a left-winger 
fringe person going after him in um I, uh, I keep the, Mark Mark Zephyr, uh Bob Zephyr. I, I don't even know who the guy is, but he, it's it's a race. I don't know if I'd call it a race, but yeah, uh, Cuomo is getting a is getting a a attack from the left, and in a state like New York that has uh, that has not has has had budget issues, also has issues with uh, state worker unions, um, and Cuomo has taken some difficult stands as governor. Uh, he he has disrupted the base on that point on those points. So it, it is an interesting path to walk when uh, Democrats really want to engage on these issues. Carl Tuman. Also remember that uh, his father was also governor, uh, popular governor uh, for most of his terms. So I think I think that has to be a factor in this race. But I, I, I and, and quite frankly, Alan Moore, there, there's. Everybody inside the political circles, not in, not just inside the Beltway, but also up in the Great Empire State, are pretty much putting the bets on the fact that Cuomo will win ultimately later tonight. But it seems to be sending a message to even both parties that the establishment has got to rein in some of these fringe uh, factions inside their realm. Well, we talk about, <laughs> we've had this conversation before. Where's the establishment? Why aren't they stepping up and tossing these guys out? They don't have the power to do that. It's, it's, the, power, it's the power of the system for people to catch on, for, for voters not to go to the polls, for, for turnout to make a difference. I, I wanted to comment on something that Carl said because, because uh, I, I agree that I think, I think Biden will be all over the country because in an odd way, he's still pretty popular. The Clintons... They're going to be selective. They're not going to want to harm their brand, and they're going to go to places where they can be useful. The president, my God, he's got an open fall. You said if he, goes, if he only goes to the places where he's popular, he's got almost no place to go, so he can get a lot of golf in this fall. <laughs> ben Lippman. Oh, wow. 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 Took that shot. That was impressive, Alan. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Dan Lipner and then Carl Tuvis. Let's be clear what the actual political landscape is. There's been a rise of populist feelings in both parties. That's the creation of the Tea Party. And right now on the Democratic side, the most popular politician by far uh, is, or at least most exciting politician by far, is Elizabeth Warren. She actually went into West Virginia and was well-received because what she does uniquely is she's straight away from talking about social issues, which Democrats can frequently get lost in the woods, or stayed away from the green issues. She's stayed almost uniquely on economic issues, which average Americans have been struggling with for more than two decades now, that consistently working-class Americans have been losing ground as in the economy. While Wall Street might be going at a record high with this socialist president, as uh, the Tea Party folks would say, um, that there, there, there is this undertone, and people are looking for a place to go. So to throw the bums out, when you see people talk, when you see Congress talking about every issue other than the actual pocketbook issues that average Americans are, have been struggling with, yeah, that populist sentiment is going to continue to grow. Carl Tuvin. Uh, well, I was going to use this as a story, but if the president is going to play a lot of golf, I hope they put him in a Chevrolet, take him miles away from Washington with no press. So there's no optics, 
<laughs> okay, going for the joke. I like it. But but Bob Hines, Bob Hines, you you you've been around both parties for decades. Uh, you you run national conventions at the national level for the Republican Party, but. In your day, we saw more of a political machine effort and more control by the central party at both the RNC and DNC level. And even back in Carl's day, where you had a strong uh, central state party that had a lot of control of let's stay, let's stay together. Has that been broken down in many instances? And will we ever get back to the consolidated word of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as one voice? Well, I... I think it's fair to say that um, you know, um, it, it's so much is, is easily available over the internet and communication is so much wider. It's easier for you know, rump groups to begin here, there, and everywhere. But it's also a question of national leadership. Now, let me make a Just think about some of the chairmen of the Democratic and Republican Party in the past. They have been much stronger people than what we have had in recent years. Is this breakdown a slight against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, DNC chair, and Wright's previous RNC chair? Yeah. Alan Moore, you agree? I, well, I, I certainly agree with, with Wasserman Schultz, who I don't think has fully embraced the, uh, the differences between being the the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the the head, the head of the RNC. The DNC. Excuse me, the DNC. She's she she stepped in it up in Wisconsin, and you know the last thing you want to do is say something aggressive, and then a day or two later have to start apologizing for your choice of words. And uh, so I think she's and she's trying to have a full time job also. She's still got to be a representative from so, Florida. Uh, I think. I, I don't think Congress do that much anyway. I don't. I don't think full-time members of Congress or the Senate should serve as RNC chair Carl, or DNC as party chair. I, I mean, think it's a mistake. Basically, going off of what Alan's saying, Carl Tubin is Debbie Wasserman Schultz the Democrat Mel Martinez. I don't think he's a Democrat. She's a Democrat Mel Martinez, but I think in many respects she's done a very, very good job in, in holding uh, a party together and. Frankly, I was very surprised that Priebus survived the last election, and uh, I, you know, I just don't know um, what the Republicans were thinking. You, you, you know, you took a drubbing, and, and and then you reward him by giving him another uh, two years. And I, and I think if I had been a Republican, I would have said, let's find someone else. Dan Lipner? Well, it's also worth noting that the Republicans spent a lot of money after the last election to figure out a strategy on how they're going to reach out and keep that from happening. And one of those things was actually immigration reform um, and reach, reaching out to minorities and whatnot. And all of, all of Rand's previous agenda items near second figure went absolutely nowhere. So why would anyone of authority or power want that job when that job has no juice? So... There is there is a question of that, and taking a step further, with the media culture the way it is, that any minor failure gets shouted from the mountaintop. Last, literally last week at this time, we were the media went nuts about the president talking about uh, ISIS while wearing a tan suit. Really? 
So the idea that the media culture and so many things can get lost in the noise that is completely artificial and actual substance of act, talent or skills can't actually get through because the white noise, in that case, completely artificially created. It, even around this table, I heard somebody, nobody at the table at the moment, uh, somebody uh, mentioned that this was actually conspiracy theory to keep the president's words from being heard. That's why he wore the tan suit. And that actually... <laughs> you, know, you know, the funny thing about that, the funny thing about the tan suit thing is within five minutes, obviously we here at Backroom Politics, we follow the Twitter feeds as major events are going on. I was watching the live Twitter feeds during that presidential announcement with the beige suit. Within five minutes of him taking the podium, there are at least three or four parody... Twitter handles, one called Barry's Beige Suit, the other one called uh, 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 Bear, uh, Barack Obama Faith in Taupe. It was really, really, really bad. No, but that, that's part of the issue. And I, I have no issues with somebody creating the Twitter feed. I do have issues with the mainstream media then reporting on this. There's more than enough things out there the public is uninformed about and is trying to get information on, and they can't get it when CNN is spending its quality time talking about President's beige suit. So, by the way, John Dingell, Congressman Al John Dingell, our friend, uh, Democratic uh, statesman from Michigan, uh, Twittered within a few minutes of the taupe suit coming up on Twitter, said that uh, he actually liked the suit and showed a picture of him wearing a very similar suit. So, <laughs> obviously... Barack Obama getting his fashion sense from John Dingell. But John, John, incidentally, is ill right now, and I wish him well. We'll, we'll talk about that here and, and uh, tell me a story. But Can we stop talking about the base suit? Yeah, yeah oh, oh, we're falling into the same trap. Damn. <laughs> but, but I do want to bring up, this brings up a valid point, yeah, though. Yeah. Congressman, going off of what Dan and I were, and everyone was talking about, it, it, it seems now that the parties are beholden to the mainstream media, whereas they're, they're having to adjust to the message versus drive the message. How do you change that? I don't know, because I, I don't think you can answer that question without including all of the, what do they call it, the, the social media? The social media. Uh, <clears throat> the social media is driving more, I think, than the... Uh, than, than the 24-hour news channels? I, I think so. Uh, in that the 24-hour news channels leap on all these things to uh, to fill up their time. The the major old-fashioned media, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, etc. Well, not Fox. Uh, <laughs> they they're the only ones that seem to be hanging on for dear life to real news and trying to report re responsible. Everything else is in chaos, and I think it's making it extremely difficult for the parties to get their messages out unaffected by all of the nonsense that, uh, that, that the social media is putting into it. Bob Hines? And it's also true that uh, the, the cable media, uh, there's almost nothing on cable in the, in the news area that you would consider to be objective, straight reporting, like you used to get with Chancellor and, and um, Harry Reasoner. Harry Reasoner. Those those those, time, those days are gone. And but, the problem is we have we have we have literally a whole bunch of people making a ton of money driving the driving people's views. 
to the extreme left and the extreme right. But Carl Tuvin, that's got to make, especially at the state level, a state party chair and state party executive director's job almost impossible to manage fighting for less money than they've ever had, fighting for less support than they've ever had. You know, does it make the state party still relevant? State party is very relevant in my mind. And I was, I was going to say, <clears throat> and it ties into all this, the people who have the better ground game are the people who are going to be the winners in this election. And it's, it's, it's all door-to-door canvassing and, and all that stuff. And the, the ones who, the states that do that, and I'm, I'm going to watch very closely to see which states have the majority of Republican and Democrat, because I think that's what's going to turn this election. But Alan Moore, actually uh, bring up, a, you know, segue into a, into a new point, though, going off of what Carl was saying, along with the ground game, the president doesn't have the coattails, and we're not seeing the president doing a lot of stumping right now and sending out surrogates like Joe Biden in many instances. Is his credibility and his value as faith and hope for a new generation, has it been tarnished that much? Yeah, I think those days are, are past us. That doesn't mean he doesn't have any value, and, he's, and he continues to hold fundraisers and raises money for, for the party and for individuals, and he still can... Uh, he can still bring money in, and money, money still does talk. It doesn't, it doesn't begin to have all the influence that, that, that people think it does, but it, it's certainly better to have money than not to have money. But he's going to have to be really, uh, really selective and careful. There are a lot of people who just say, love you, Mr. President, don't come to my state until this thing is over. Dan Lipner. Uh Well, this president never had coattails, so let's be clear on that. Really? Uniquely, and if you if if you look at if you look at the it, both his uh, first election and his re-election to pre- as president, he had coattails in neither. Um, and I, I won't say exactly which member of Congress said this to me. Said this is one of the, this president's one of the most selfish politicians she's ever seen in her lifetime. Wow. Um, so you, at least you know it's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that knocks it down, uh, and it's House, so that knocks it down even more. <laughs> that that being said, um, the the actual issue is going to be turnout. The the at least for the Senate. The question of whether or not the president's GOTV machine uh, will uh, get out the vote uh, machine that he used so effectively in his election and re-election will actually transfer to an off-year election. That brings us back to what Carl was saying, and I think this is something that can be easily overlooked. I think the parties are weaker than they used to be. But where, when you get down to the election day, it becomes a mechanical process. And the, 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 the social media on election day have less influence than they have on every day going up to election day. If the two parties can organize their get out the vote campaign, they can can dominate all of these noisy things that are going around the edge that they can't dominate during the campaign. Listen, listen, Al, listen to Al, Mr. Know-it-all. You'd think he'd ran for office. It's all, yeah. oh, wait. oh, wait, he oh, did. Wait. He oh, did. Wait. He did, and he got elected a whole bunch of times. Yeah, at least, this guy. at least four times. At least four times, Carl Tubin. <laughs> four times. 
Eight. Eight. Oh, eight times. Yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. I'm underselling you. I can't even remember my own introduction. <laughs> Go ahead, Carl Tubin. Tomorrow night could be a typical night for the president. If the president gives a, a, a good speech uh, and he rallies the people and he looks like a leader and he looks like a president, he might... Is that enough to get the coattails somewhat he might, back? He might turn some people's ears to him. Wow. I, th- I think you're, you're wishing for a unicorn, Carl. I mean, the reality is, be. I mean, we haven't seen coattails on this president since his first midterm in 2010. Let's be honest. It, 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 it is something that has eluded him for... The first midterm uh, that he lost the health? Yeah, <laughs> we, that, was, that was the only time that the people wanted to put people down. Yeah, <laughs> those are the only coattails he's had. The rest of the time he's, he's no been coattails. he's got no coattails. I mean, th- th- I mean, the reality is the first time you would think that he would have kept that plateau. So you're or agreeing that, with me, is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, yeah, kind of. Okay, <laughs> Bob. Hines. You know, the president's going to speak tomorrow uh, from the White House. Right. I'm a little bit uh, surprised that he didn't uh, go to the congressional leadership and say, "I want to talk to this. I want to talk to the joint leaderships." I'm surprised he didn't do it. The joint session of Congress. Yeah. yeah. I would have, if I would have been advising, advising the president when he's talking about a major, major decision, something that's you know in effect sending American people, American soldiers, in harm's way, whether they're just uh, trainers or whether they are flyer fighter pilots or whatever they are. I think I would have I would have said to the to get the Congress together. I think it would have been a good thing for him to do. I think it was a mistake. He didn't do it. What you could have brought that up in our first segments. Carl Tuvin. Spader might have said no. No, he would not. <laughs> no, I will tell you, I'll guarantee you he would have said no. Uh, but going back going back to the midterms now, it, it, it seems to me and we've we've tried to handicap this, I'm gonna go around the table, is number one, uh, Congressman Al do the Democrats maintain the Senate, and is there going to be a landslide in the House, more seats for the Republicans? Let me think. Uh, all everybody is saying that the, that the Senate is gone but uh, to the Republicans, but uh, I sense that a number of things are happening that, that it's possible that might be... Uh, a premature, squeak, a squeaker that the Democrats could win. Bob Hines, that's the Senate. Yeah, House. The House, I think, is likely to stay uh, Republican because of redistricting that set that. There just aren't that many uh, seats available to switch. Thank you, Florida. Bob Hines. I think the House is safe for the Republicans. Uh, gerrymandering by both parties has pretty well fixed about three-fourths of the seats at a 70-30 ratio, exactly. and, and that's it. The Republicans will probably... What about the Senate? The Republicans win six or eight seats in the House, and that's about it. Maybe you know get about three, 240. What about in, the Senate? In the Senate, my guess, my guesstimate is it's going to be very close, but I do expect the Republicans to probably have 51 senators. Call Tubin. I think the Senate stays Democratic, and I think that um, the Democrats could make some gains in the House. Alan Moore? 
Yeah, I think I'm with Bob here that, that <laughs> the, the Republicans pick up a few. They, they thought they could get a, a dozen or more. I get, I'm guessing four or five sort of in his number. And I think, I think if the election were today, the Republicans would, would squeak out uh, a victory in the Senate. But, man, this stuff is so volatile, <laughs> so tight. We'll, uh, we'll see. But I, I still, at this point, think the Republicans will pull out a... Dan Lipner. Uh, especially with the new news that uh, Pat Roberts in Kansas might actually be in trouble with his Senate seat, that Republicans are now fighting to keep the Democrats on the ballot uh, to, to uh, keep the seat because the independent actually leads all. Um, I am still standing with my, my belief that Democrats will... We will lose a couple seats, but we will still hold the Senate. Correct answer is 51-49 in the Senate. The Republicans will pick up five new seats. That being said... Thank uh, you again, John. I love that part of my job. <laughs> that being said, when we come, and come back, we're going to talk about a piece of American history that happened 40 years ago this past weekend that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's come back on the radar, and it's something that a couple of our people around the table were directly involved in or indirectly involved in. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to talk a little piece of uh, American history that happened 40 years ago, uh, just this past weekend. 40 years ago, President Gerald R. Ford pardoned former President Richard Nixon for his, any, and basically pardoned him for any criminal, possible criminal involvement that he had involving Watergate and the impending impeachment against him as, uh, as our uh, chief executive here in the United States. It largely was viewed with very cynical eyes. It was something that many people believed cost Gerald Ford any possibility of re-election. It is, uh, it's a piece of history that we don't usually talk about, but the reality is it, it's a big deal where a current president pardons a former president. It's never happened in our lifetime, and God willing, will never happen again. But, Bob, let me start with you. You were very close to the Ford administration. We, we joked about the fact you were part of the Ford kitchen cabinet while he was both vice president and president. Um, why was the Ford pardon of Richard Nixon so significant, and why, 40 years later, is it something we should still talk about and still look at as a piece of American history? There are two things that, um, that, were, that are important. Number one, the, um, the president, Mr. Ford, uh, took a look at, re at reality. Um, and the idea of having uh, Leon Jaworski and his special uh, uh, his special uh, committee that commission that was looking at all the president stuff was uh, was going to if he would have uh, if, if nothing would have happened like uh, if Mr. Ford would have done nothing and let it just go that would have been a two year or more struggle with Nixon, the White House papers, and uh, the reality was that Mr. Mr. Ford thought several things. Number one, it would destroy his presidency to be having two years, two and a half years of legal fights back and forth, 
where the quotes, the White House papers, all this kind of thing was in front of him, and he had to be President of the United States. And he, was, he is a lawyer, and his and his and, and the legal staff, and I was a little bit little bit a part of it. Did some research. There is a 1915 Supreme Court decision. It's directly in point with what what a pardon, a presidential pardon is. A presidential pardon is a statement that the person who accepts it that implicitly admits that he is guilty of the offenses that uh, he is being pardoned for. Mr. Nixon had a great deal of trouble of accepting that. Um, but um, that's the first thing that is, that is vitally here. Secondly, uh, by giving him a pardon, Mr. Ford was able to keep, Mr. Nixon was not able to get a hold of all the papers in the White House that dealt with Watergate and remained in the public domain rather than under the control of Mr. Nixon and he could have burned the whole damn thing. Uh, and the reality is that when uh, uh, my colleague Benton Becker, go, on, go ahead, Al. No, no, no. no. Uh, uh, when, the pardon, when the pardon issue came up and we were working on, you know, looking at the legal right, legal standards, um, the president, we, we wrote a, uh, we wrote out the, the statement of the, of the uh, admission that he was guilty. We sent, we went, we, Benton Becker took to the, to Mr. Nixon, the pardon, along with the requirement that Mr. Nixon give a, a, a uh, give up any rights of the, of the papers and that he also had to sign the uh, com the, the, the compliment, the, what do I say, the, my mind is wrong. He had to also sign the reality that he was admitting that he was guilty by accepting the pardon and signing A convention statement, basically. Yeah. It was very interesting because the, the fellow who took it out there, Benton Becker, um, my colleague at this time, what he did, he took the took took the pardon to Nixon. Nixon and he had a conversation for about 20 minutes, discussing what was what it meant. And Nixon began to understand that it was a statement that he was guilty, and that he would lose control of all his uh, of the White House papers. Well, what, Congressman Al, you were a a staffer on the Hill during this time, correct? Uh, I either was or I shortly had been. I can't. Right. 70, 74. 74. 74. 74. Well, 74, yeah. I, you were a staffer. Recalling the sentiment back in the House, was there a sense of relief that Joe Ford had taken this action in pardoning President Nixon in the sense of, of the members of Congress that I, you were dealing with? I think so, but uh, yes sense of relief, but the, the point that I think is most important, and, and Bob has laid out beautifully the, the, the facts of the thing and, and the technical aspects of it, <clears throat> all of which I think mount to saying you should pardon him and get this off the table. But in addition to that, there would be an emotional impact on the body politic, because 
Nixon would have ended up in jail. Yeah. And sending a president to jail and living with a president in jail is something that I don't think the American public would have been terribly comfortable with. They wouldn't have liked him. They wouldn't have resurrected him. But they would be embarrassed to have a president, a former president, sitting in some federal prison. So, my conclusion is that if well, John Kennedy is gone, but uh, Ted Sorensen had a lot to do with write, writing the Profiles in Courage. If he were to upgrade that, update it, I think that the first new person he would add to it would be Gerald Ford. Alan Moore? Wait, wait oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Congressman. Gerald Ford, because it, it, it took a lot of courage to do it. I don't think the president was uninformed or unaware of the fact that it could have very negative reactions no. on him. We talked, it, we talked about it. Yeah. And he said, I don't care. Okay. I'm going to do it. Okay. This is a profile in courage. And uh, I think that the nation today is much better off for him having pardoned Nixon than it would have been if he had just let it all slide and run its own course. If he had let it go, there would have been Jaworski probably, uh, and that would have been a long, dragged out trial. You can imagine that. And the question was, get it behind us, number one, and number two, keep the papers in control of the White House, not let Nixon get a hold of them. And might I also say, we've just watched a governor of the state of Virginia go through that whole trial and think this would have been that written huge. And I don't think dragging the country, the country through that would have been worth it. That's what Jerry thought too. Yeah, I, 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 I basically agree. I think he absolutely did the right thing for all the right reasons. I think he did it poorly. Why? And, and you know, I worked in the White House with President Ford after, after this occurred. He did not prepare the American people there were, for what he was about to do. He so so the American people were, first of all, wanted even more blood at the time for the, the president. And two, there was this big suspicion that there had been some sort of pre-understanding with the president that, that I'll step down if you pardon me. Now, none of that occurred. I, I, I love... Henry Kissinger's line about Jerry Ford, he said, he is the only normal person who ever served as president of the United States. And I think because he was this normal, decent guy, he wasn't the strategist. If he had spent a week or two with and let his people spend a little time getting some newspaper stories out there about they're actively considering a pardon, and it didn't come as a surprise, such a surprise that his own press secretary, newly, newly minted, didn't know and resigned a day or two later. So, so if it, it was absolutely the right thing. The Kennedy Library has given the Profile in Courage Award to Gerald Ford many, many years later for, for this action. So what all they needed, not, not that it's simple, but what he really, it just Ford didn't think that way. He thought it's the right thing, let's do it, put it behind us. A little extra time to prepare the American people. And Gerald Ford might have had 
a full term as president because this plagued him for the rest of his days. Great. Right. Bob Hines. Alan is, is exactly right that if Ford had been more politically uh, focused, he would have spent more time letting the American people know what he was doing. Bob, let me ask you this question now in, in, in regards to that. Was there truly at that time any way to truly prepare an already cynical American public that this was the right thing to do and slowly pull off the Band-Aid versus just rip it off? It's hard to tell. I mean, it didn't happen. Right. Yeah, it didn't happen. We we ask it a different way, Bob. Were the American people prepared to forgive Richard Nixon? No. No, they were not. That's not forgiveness. No, a pardon is not forgiveness. Not forgiveness. Still have but wait, 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 wait. And, and let me, no, no, no. Let me, let me ask. Let me clarify that question, though. Not happy when Ford made made the statement that he was giving a pardon to Nixon. Right. But what I'm, he did not, what he did not do, was lay out all the other things that could happen when he didn't do it. Okay. And in addition to which, <clears throat> he would have had time for. A, for, for the information we've just, I've heard for the first time about the whole history of what it means, that it wasn't mean forgiveness, it wasn't meaning that, I mean, he had to admit his guilt, all of that would have come out yeah. during those but, days, and that would have had some effect on the but public. But Bob Hines, when, when we, you know, when, and, and I understand what you're saying, but when I say that the American people are willing to forgive for Richard Nixon, this obviously cost Gerald Ford any further time in the White House. 1980, 1980 could have been Gerald Ford's to retake the White House had this not happened or had this not have to happen. I guess the question more so would be, would... It actually would have been 1976. 76, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 1976, 1980. I'm sorry, my, my apologies, 1976. Had... had Gerald Ford not done this, he obviously would have retaken it in 76. The question is, would the American people have forgiven Gerald Ford enough to reelect him had he taken a more strategic position on this? I believe that he, if he had laid it out more publicly, broader, talking about the fact that this is, now, and, and, and quite frankly, the biggest problem was Nixon. Nixon literally refused Benton Becker walking into his office and out there and said, I'm, I'm carrying the, your pardon. Understand that if you sign this, you are implicitly stating I was guilty and, I'm, you know, and, I, and I am, now I've been pardoned. Nixon refused to sign. Benton Becker walked to the door of Mr. Nixon's office and said, if I leave this office, Mr. Nixon, you will be indicted. And Nixon paused for about 90 seconds at least before he said, okay. And the difference is, is huge because we would have had two years of Jaworski, you know, chasing Nixon. What this did was stop all of that. It also, it also required Nixon to sign a gift, a guarantee 
that the papers in the White House were controlled by the National, by this National Archives in the White House. And he could not control them, and he could never take them out. Dan Lipner? And those two things, what, Nick, what, what from Ford's standpoint, having the documents staying under government control and having the president admit his liability was what he was after. And he, got, he, did, he did exactly that. But if he would have done a better job of prep, for the public, I think it would have been much better in his case. Dan Lipner. Well, I, the, the Nixon impeachment and or potential impeachment, eventual resignation and pardon, I look at solely through the, through the eyes of history. And with Alan, taking Alan's comment about preparing the American public and everything else, I, I'm the one line that's, that constantly comes out to me and that suggests that where it was a Gerald Ford's uh, profile and courage moment was, we're a country of laws, not of men. And the preparing the American public, and as fickle as the American public is, and looking through a contemporary scope, a drip, drip of what might happen, that kind of outrage of, of, against what is now, I think we can see through historical eyes, was the right thing to do, might not have been allowed to happen with the, with the outrage that preempted the actual action. And that kind of thing, the, the allowing that political uh, wave to build to preempt your action, I can see the president, President Ford, not wanting to allow it to occur. And, and especially with you know the White House, and as we talked about earlier, with the immigration reform and all these all these other issues, the politics of the fickle public sometimes does not lead to good public policy and good decision making for a chief executive. The president is uniquely vested with the pardon authority in himself, not through any other agencies. It is his signature that, that creates the pardon. Yeah. Nothing more, no one else. Bob, uh, we got one more minute before we go to tell me a story, but I want to ask this question. This is probably one of the most courageous acts we've seen out of the chief executive in modern history. Uh, and I mean, in, in, you know, from the 70s on. Is there a chance we'll ever see another courageous moment, a moment of self-sacrifice that we saw from Gerald Ford again? Oh, God. Let me say, and I suppose I would say everybody around this table would agree, let us hope it never comes that we have another situation where a president is so engaged in illegal activity that is clearly demonstrably visible with all the documents that were there, that I hope we never have anything like that again because it was a very traumatic person. Everybody one around this table was old enough and was actively involved in politics, I suspect, at that time. It was a terrible time. And I hope we never, never have to go through something like that again. Fair enough. And if we ever do, I hope we have someone as brave and as honorable as Gerald Ford who did the right thing in, in the public face, and he, he, he probably could have made it better, but he did the best he could do to get it behind him as quickly as he could. Right. Here, here. Alan Moore, yeah, last word. Just, 30 just, seconds. Yeah, I think that, that there are plenty of Americans in that office in that time and place who would have come to the same conclusion. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the guy, no. but I don't think it was this amazing, extraordinary thing. Bob laid out the facts very well. You look at those, and then you gather your people around and say, this is what I'm going to do. How do we sell it? And he didn't do the sell it part, um, and he went ahead anyway. Bless him for doing it. Um, 
but I don't think it was as courageous an act as we're sort of portraying it. I think it was the smart move. He knew it was the smart move and the right move, and he just stubbornly said, let's go. Let's I, do I, it. I, I want to take 10 seconds to say I, I respectfully disagree with you, Alan. Uh, I think, I think I'll that... I'll take another 10 seconds to respectfully disagree. I, I respectfully disagree because I'll tell you right now, knowing the fact the public sentiment was going to go against him, knowing the fact that he was, in fact, 18 months away from actually going into a re-election cycle, knowing the fact that this would probably, most likely, cause him to lose his presidency. He, he that wasn't is thinking a, about it that way. This was not that hard a no, call for him. No, it wasn't. It, it was, was not that hard a call no. for him. He just didn't. He just didn't let it unfold the way he the way he could have. Fair and, enough. And he paid a huge, I think, a huge price for the way he let Honestly, it unfold. Honestly, I think America paid a huge price because Gerald Ford didn't get a second term. Well, he didn't get that full term. He certainly would have. And I lost president. my job in the White House. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and we got Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got Jimmy Carter. And I, let me put it this way: Gerald, four more years of Gerald Ford would have been a hell of a lot better than Jimmy Carter. Uh, amen. How would Gerald Ford have handled the Iran the Iran crisis? Uh, come on, never would have. Never would have happened. Never would have happened under Gerald Ford. Oh yeah. The Shaw? No, I'm just telling you, it never would have happened. Probably. Nope. Well, and in terms of, in terms of. His re-election, we, we, we shouldn't completely overlook the fact of his comments about Poland in the in the in the debate. I mean that that was did not happen. Did not happen. Yeah, I agree. Well, 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 Reagan's rule. All right. Well, let, let's. With that being said, it's now time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story, where we go around that where we go around the table, talk about the news innuendo and topics that we didn't cover on the show today, and we're going to start with Bob Hines. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Hines. Eight minutes left. I'm finished. I did my thing. Good deal. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. One minute. When uh, when I heard about all the Twitter thing and, and the criticism of the president in his tan suit, for some reason, I thought of Franklin Roosevelt. And, and oh, here we <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt had a little dog by the name of Fella. And he gave a speech, and he said, they criticized me, they criticized my family, and now they're criticizing my little dog, Fella. And all I can think of is of all the criticism that this president's got had over the years, and then he wears a tan suit, and they criticize that. Uh, but, but Buddy is impeachable. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Alan Moore. And Fallon used to wear a little tan sweater. So, uh, Alan Moore, tell me a story. So, so uh, Al, Al mentioned uh, Bob McDonald's uh, conviction last week. Uh, exactly the opposite of what I predicted a week ago, where I thought that my, my sense of the law was that because the law was so poor, that he would get off and his life would be a gigantic mess, marriage ruined, et cetera. Now his life is even worse. We'll see what happens. When, when, when Tom DeLay was convicted in Texas, it was overturned on appeal. They're going to appeal. It could get overturned. I don't know. All I do know is that what every American politician is now afraid of, and it's a good thing, is, oh, my God, all those favors that I do for donors – no, most people aren't stupid enough as McDonald to take these personal gifts, personal loans, but donors who give tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, presidential bundlers who raise half a million dollars and then get, and then get a, a fancy embassy in Europe. There's a lot of stuff out there where there's a, 
there's this implied quid pro quo. And if you could look at emails and communications like we did with McDonald, there's a there, there's there's fallout from this that we aren't we can't even begin to imagine. But keep watch. Very good, Dan Lipner. Oh wait, before I go, uh, Alan Moore, ten seconds. Does Bob Donald does Bob McDonald see the inside of a jail cell? I doubt it, but God, I don't know. I don't know. It is the Commonwealth law. You never know. But well, Dan Lipner. He's got a, the appeal process. That's true. Uh, well, since we talked about uh, 40 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, uh, uh, domestic violence is now in the news. But 20 years ago, it became a, an issue of federal law. Uh, Joe Biden wrote, sponsored, and shepherded a law, the Violence Against Women Act, through the Congress, that is still the law of the land. It was, as a matter of fact, it was just reauthorized. And for all of the press coverage that's out there, actually adding a bit of substance, that there, there are things that law and legislators can actually do, as opposed to mob justice and the Twitter world that we're dealing with, to actually engage and try and solve problems that we're dealing with right. that are in the public. Uh, Bob Hines, 10 seconds. I suspect that when the uh, when the former governor uh, appeals, one of his appeal points, which I think may be very solid, is the fact that he is that the judge said that in effect saying to a head of a department, would you please talk to this guy, James, you know, Jimmy Williams, about his pills? Now I think if if that's if that's a corrupt act, then every everybody in K every Street's in trouble. Every politician in America is really doomed. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's what the, that's Congressman what, Al, thirty seconds. Very, very, very small. <clears throat> I served in Congress for sixteen years, and this is something the public needs to understand. During those sixteen years, I had maybe one slight issue that came up where and and I, I turned I turned the contribution down. But it's not as though people are running around buying congressmen all over the place. Most congressmen are never approached, never asked to do anything like that. And uh, and that's the standard among the Cunningham's still in jail, isn't he? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, oh, 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 we got we got short time. We got short time. Uh, real quick, I want to say something about this Ray Rice incident. Uh, as moderator, I set the agenda for, the, for this show. I, 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 I took moderator's privilege and I made the determination we're not going to fall into the media frenzy surrounding Ray Rice. Ray Rice should never see another day in the NFL again. What Ray Rice did was irrehensible. He acted like an animal. It was acts that you would not do anyway as a human being. The reason why we did not spend a lot of time on it is because I believe the media frenzy, as much as it does bring the attention of domestic violence, which should be brought to attention, it gives him also the opportunity to defend himself, which also glorifies the NFL players as not necessarily being part of the general community, being above and beyond. That's why we didn't talk about it today. That's just my, that's just my privilege, and I'm going to take heed for it, but that's the reality. I support that judgment. So, so my story is, upcoming is the Scottish separation election. The Scots, up until about six months ago, were thinking we're still going to be part of the United Kingdom. We're still going to be beholden to London. In the past two weeks, 
due to several events, including the de facto movement of the Tories over to the UK Independence Party, there has been a tremendous upswing in I votes going towards Scottish separation and Scottish independence. I've talked to several folks in Edinburgh. They are now singing a different tune. They now believe that the vote will go in the affirmative and Scotland will be an independent nation, although part of the Commonwealth. They've, we're going to have a new Scotland. Scotland the brave. Scotland way hey. Uh, oh, and by the way, they're still going to use the British pound, which creates a whole other cluster no, of issues. They're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, they, no, they've already made the agreement. They're already, there's already thought that the agreements are in place. Uh, anyway. Will you, will you please no. not show up in a kilt? <laughs> You're damn right I am. I'm going to show up in the kilt the day Scottish goes independent. I'm going to be walking around this thing like a Highlander. But I will have underwear on. Ankle <laughs> Yeah, with, with that being said, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore, and uh, Dan Lipner. Special thanks, obviously, to Denise Kreft, who had to bail out a little bit early. I am your moderator, Justice Russell. We will be back next week here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, uh, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Place to be. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, a special shout-out to our associate producers, Yardin Carcone. Thank you very much. And our associate producer, Carly Ray. For their, all their help in getting today set up. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.